Hi, everybody. Welcome to Marvel Reread Club. My name's Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is another very special episode, another great guest episode. Let's go and do our theme music. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Marvel Reread Club. We are welcoming special guest Jeremy Whitley. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So the reason that we have invited Jeremy here to speak with us today is that we are going to be talking about Tales to Astonish number 44. And Jeremy plumbed the depths of this issue to a rather great degree when he created his Unstoppable Wasp character. So I figured it would be interesting to have him on as we talk about this issue and talk about how he used it and uh, some of the circumstances behind it and where it's gone. Yes. So, but I mean, you are not, you are not officially listed as the creator of Nadia Van Dyne, right? It's, it's Mark Wade and Alan Davis, I think are the official listed creators. How, how did Nadia Van Dyne come about and how did you come to be associated with her? So uh, Nadia was originally introduced in the sort of free comic book day story of, of the year that she came out uh, in, in, in Avengers story. Um, and she sort of shows up and there's you know a little bit of explanation, but not a whole bunch that that ties her back to Maria Travoya, who you know we we meet in Tales to Astonish forty four here, who is uh, Hank's original wife, who has been sort of uh, lost to the depths of of comic book lore as far as a lot of people are concerned. And you know she is introduced and has a you know quick adventure with the Vision here, and then uh, Mark and I, so Mark invited me to work on some of this stuff with him. I had gotten to know Mark through, you know, doing various comic conventions and then talking about uh, books. And he thought I would be good to do the Unstoppable Wasp series they wanted to do, which was just at that point, Untitled Wasp series, you know, to, to do stuff with Nadia. And uh, I started to write that series and he he came back to me and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing sort of an intro story to her and Janet where they, you know, first meet in Avengers. Do you want to come co-write that with me? To which I was like, yeah, absolutely. To which he was like, cool, here's like a two-sentence idea of what it is. You just go to town. <laughs> that was super neat because I got to, you know, write an Avengers story. And then, you know, that sort of bled right into what we were doing for what became Unstoppable Wasp, you know, which I, I got invited to write by, you know, him and uh, Tom Brevoort. And wow. uh, I'm the only person who's written a solo comic for Nadia. I have two volumes under my, my belt now. Mm-hmm. But then I've written her in Avengers and a few other places as well. You're the only person so, who's ever written a solo comic for any Wasp, correct? Yeah. Uh, with, I guess, the current exception of, like, she's got a like a, a one-off, or not, or not Nadia, but Janet has a one-off story in the Darkhold stuff that's coming off right now. But that's a slightly different version of, of Janet than, you know, the, the normal version. And yeah, Janet has never had a, an ongoing or really even a, a mini of her own. Right. So you are, so we are going to introduce this character tonight in our normal read through of Marvel comics. It is going to be quite a story an insane story. We are so happy to have you here to read it with us. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about how you then Many, many, many years later, took up the torch with this character. Well, Tales to Astonish 44 is is such a Stan Lee comic. He really packs it in here. 
Like, he really does. I mean, I was wondering how he packs so much in, and I realized it is longer than any previous Hank Pym story, which helps explain how he packs so much in. But it is so reasonably packed. longer to like get in what he wants to get in because, yeah, like this fully introduces like Hank Pym's backstory, which had not been told to this point. Like he's just mm-hmm. he's just the the man who shrinks to the size of an ant. He's just scientist Hank Pym. And then, you know, he's he's the man in the anthill. And then, like, suddenly, this one, he's like, what if I gave him a tragic backstory about a wife and then, and the same issue, gave him a new girlfriend that he can then marry and can be his new partner? Also, I'm they're both going to be the daughters of people he's working with. And uh, both of those people he's working with are going to get killed in this issue as well. Yes. Yeah. It is. It is just packed. It is just packed. So let's. Well, we, well, we'll first, first of all, first of all, let's acknowledge that uh, when you talk about this is such a Stanley comic, and he did all of these things. Of course, Jack Kirby was always, you know, very much a co-storyteller in all of this. Yeah. And in this case, H. E. Huntley, and I forget who that's a um, a pseudonym for, uh, did the scripting. So we we do want to acknowledge yes. that the uh, storytelling is divided between at least three people. Yeah, in every issue of Your Unstoppable Wasp, it says the Wasp was created by Stan Lee, Ernie Hart, and Jack Kirby. So H.E. Huntley's was Ernie Hart. I was researching him for this episode. He is a fascinating person. He painted murals for the WPA during the Depression. He uh, Then he went to work for Timely Comics. His most famous creation was he did comedic books for Timely, and he created the character of Super Rabbit who had his own oh, book for a while. I did see this. I did look this up. Yes. All right. And then this was the first superhero comic he'd ever written. He ended up only coming back to Marvel long enough to write five superhero comics, of which this was the first, and then left again, clearly thought that this was not an ideal home for him, had had more success as a writer of parodies of superhero comics. And that helps explain a little bit about this issue. Because it is insane. <laughs> and yeah. the fact that this was this was someone who had written parodies of superhero comics was now trying to write an actual superhero comic for the first time. That kind of makes a little more sense now. So Jeremy, when they published every issue of your Unstoppable Wasp comic, in each issue it said Wasp created by Stanley, Ernie Hart, and Jack Kirby. Did you did you have any sense of who Ernie Hart was? Uh, not really. I, I did look up Ernie Hart later on to, uh, you know, the sea, but no, I, I knew very little about Ernie Hart going in. Um, the one thing that was fun, I mean, beyond the feeling of like legacy with handling, you know, characters that are, you know, direct creations of, of Stan and Jack, uh, the really fun thing about this was, you know, in this issue, they introduce Maria Travoya, who's, you know, Hank's wife that people don't know about. And the fun thing about this was when uh, when Unstoppable Wasp came out and people would tell me that I had done some sort of wild retcon to create this character, <laughs> I could be like, oh, no, this is actually like Maria Travoya is a real character created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. So clearly you're the one that doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> 
honestly, it was you. It was you saying something about that in an interview at some point a while ago that made me think as we were approaching this issue. You know who would be good to get to talk about this? Because <laughs> I know that you had you had been accused of that in the past and had to and were able yeah. to throw this issue in their face. So, whose idea was it to connect the new character to this first wife? Oh, that was absolutely Mark's idea. Oh. Putting putting that in there initially and uh, connecting her back that way. I, I didn't know about it off the top of my head. And uh, at the point that he told me this, I was like, oh, I'll have to go fish that episode up and, and figure out uh, how all of this connects. And it's it's interesting because so few people remember uh, Maria, but also like she's been referenced in other Avengers stuff. Like they had a whole, I want to say it was during Kurt Busiek's run on uh, Avengers that like, they think they found Maria at one point, and it turns out to be, you know, a, a trap, a clone, a, you know, hmm. device of some sort. And you play around with that in your own Unstoppable Wasp. At one point, it's like, oh, she's really alive, and here she is, and and she's appeared. And then it turns out that, no, it's a, it's a bad guy in disguise. Yeah, she, she remains, uh, along with Uncle Ben, one of the two characters in Marvel <laughs> history to not come back from the grave. Well, but you did, you tacked on, you and Mark did manage to bring her back from the grave long enough to tack on an extra nine months or uh, maybe six months or so onto her life. And so as we are going to see in this issue, she... So let's go ahead and just start with this issue. So we begin, so we've, at this point, we've had what? We've had 10 issues of Ant-Man, I think, first Something started like out by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and then eventually Jack Kirby left the book and was replaced by Don Heck. And so then we had several issues by Stanley and Don Heck, and it was a really weird comic. It began as not even a superhero comic. It began as, you know, Henry Pym was just a scientist who accidentally shrunk himself down and had to survive inside an anthill. And then when he became full size again, he destroyed his formula and was never going to use it again. One-off story at the end. Then a couple months later, it's like, hey, I want to create a whole universe of superheroes. Why don't I bring that character back? And all, you know, it was very clear in the second issue that he did not want to become a superhero. He only becomes a superhero because Soviet agents take over his lab and he has to sort of become a superhero reluctantly in order to fight these Soviet agents. And so that was the original origin of the character. And then clearly at this point, you know, the Marvel Universe had started with a bang. One book had been canceled. The Hulk had been canceled for low sales. And there was clearly some thought of Ant-Man must surely have had low sales at this point. And they said, well, we could just cancel the character or continue Tales to Astonish without him. Or we could throw a Hail Mary pass. And <laughs> this issue seems to have been a real Hail Mary pass and the first real Marvel retcon because we saw why he became the Ant-Man. And suddenly it turns out, who boy, that was not why he became the Ant-Man. Turns out that there was this whole <laughs> hidden backstory and hidden motivation. So we begin with Ant-Man is coming home from a hard day of superheroing and he is sort of laying back in his chair feeling... He is tired, so very tired. If only he had help, human help, but it is his destiny never to reveal his secret to any other human being. And then he says aloud to himself, I must always be alone. It is my fate. If only Maria were here by my side, together we could, but Maria is gone. Hello, Mrs. Pym, my beautiful Maria, my lovely wife. And then suddenly this woman appears before him and she says, hello, Mr. Pym, my handsome husband. Now, whoa, 
all right, this has not even been slightly hinted at before this. And as you said, Jeremy, it would rarely be mentioned again. So reading this story, whether you uh, were moving your way through the Marvel Universe as it was originally being released, or even more so if you're going back through the Marvel Universe now, is a shocker. And then already we're at the bottom of page two, and we are off to the races as we find out that he has married a Hungarian refugee. She is says, we escaped your wonderful country. They will not know me now that I am the wife of an American. I am Mrs. Pym now, not Maria Trevoya. And then she, on the one hand, this is like, oh, classic people in Silver Age comics doing dumb stuff. But I find this really sort of touching that she thinks, oh, I really want to take my new husband back to see the land, back to see my homeland. And I am convinced that because I have changed my name, no one will remember me and no one will try to arrest me when I'm here. And I almost find that believable. There was this story sort of reminds me of this crazy story about this CIA agent named George Weiss, who was in a similar situation. And that was a true story that I that I had a chance to pitch to a movie producer at one point, and then he showed an interest in and we considered developing. And so I'm going to go ahead and give this story some credibility. I'm going to give it some credit. But so then all right, whoops, here we are on page three, and she is suddenly grabbed by Hungarian goons who do remember that she was here. They slug him on the head, and then they take her off. Now, here is where your story and Mark Wade's story is a retcon, in that it says an hour later at the American embassy, and Hank Pym, is, his head is still bandaged. He says, never mind my head, it's been an hour now. So they've stressed twice, it's been an hour, and then the head, presumably this is the American ambassador, says, I know, Mr. Pym, we are doing all we can to find your wife. You must be patient. Then he gets a phone call and he says, yes, this is he. Yes. Oh, I see. Yes. I'll, I'll tell him. You must be brave, my friend. My people have found your wife. There was a note on her body saying that this is what happens to those who attempt to escape from behind the Iron Curtain. And Hank says, Maria dead? No, she was so young, so beautiful. So this is, this is where the only part of the story that you and Mark Wade told that was a retcon is you stretched that hour out long enough for someone who was not showing any signs of pregnancy to give birth in captivity. Yeah. Well, interestingly in this comic, we never actually see the body. We're just told that somebody else found a body and reported that there was a body with a note on it. <laughs> And like none of that happened, none of the action in this story happens on panel. I, I feel like it's it's really interesting to look at this, especially this flashback sequence, and and realize just how little like the rules of making comics existed at this point. Yes, <laughs> because like they start the flashback like on the last panel of a page instead of just like taking it to the next page. They're like, and now we're in the past, and and then like they go through this whole flashback just for things to happen off panel anyway. Yes. Um, you know, he could have just told us all of this. <laughs> so, so in your mind, did you use that that did you use the fact that we're told off panel that the body is found as a way to shoehorn in this extra six months or so of yeah. you know, shoehorn in her having time to give birth behind the iron curtain? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, at any point in any story, Maria Travoya could still just show up. She, as far as we know, she's still alive out there somewhere. Probably not. But so much of, I think, uh, Marvel continuity, especially around anything involving the Cold War, is like, oh, yeah, everything that anybody's ever been told about that is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
Um, so many people who have uh, supposedly died have then, you know, popped up again, having di- been disappeared into Russia. That, yeah, I think there's no reason to for us to believe any of that in any more than so far as to know that Hank believes it. Well, I mean, I think Marvel and certainly the MCU has been like, look, a the former head of the KGB is still running Russia. Then as far as we're concerned, Russia is still fair game. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, who who can say they're wrong? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I th- yeah. If if they were ever if Russia is well, if Russia ever moves past the KGB, then America will have to admit that Russia is not what they once were. But so then, so then by the way, hello to our regular listener in Moscow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, there's, there's apparently one person in Moscow who listens to every episode. So hello. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to make this weird. We're glad, we're glad to know you're monitoring us. <laughs> but speaking of things that they were not being careful about or not doing their homework on before she disappears she says to her husband a just egregious typo a massive typo she says to her husband ha you are becoming a lazy husband my father always used to say and here she's supposed to say something that would be insane if it was correct but is even more insane now that it is incorrect she is supposed to say my father always used to say, go to the ants, thou sluggard, but you are not an industrious ant, are you, my love? However, even though later he will reference back what she say and say, I remember how she used to say, go to the ants, thou sluggard, in the first panel, and I don't know if this has been corrected on the Marvel Unlimited version you're looking at, she doesn't say, go to the ants, thou sluggard. She says, go to the ants, thou dullard. Is that how yeah. it is on Marvel Unlimited? Ha, you are becoming a lazy husband. My father always used to say, go to the ants, thou dullard. Yes, dullard. <laughs> so, so this is, so what's, so this was just a massive typo. They meant to say <laughs> sluggard. They said dullard. Of course, dullards, it's like, you're becoming lazy. You're becoming like a dullard. That's what we call people who are lazy. We call them dullards. No, we call them sluggards. It's just a typo. But okay, let's just assume that this they didn't do a typo and that they said, go to the ants thou sluggard. This would still be one of the most bizarre speech bubbles, certainly in Marvel history. Maybe in <laughs> And the fact history. that it's, the fact that this is Hank Pym's, yes, father, I shall become a bat is like <laughs> insane. <laughs> that he's like, yeah, remember how she said that thing about ants? I'm going to be an ant now. <laughs> yes, that is very much what this is. And so I looked up the Bible verse. So she, her father was quoting Proverbs 6.6, 6, which in Proverbs 6.6, 6, it says, go to the ant, you sluggard. I'm reading the modern New International Version translation, presumably in the King James. It was, go to the ants, thou sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So if you read the full verse from Proverbs, it actually does make some sense. This is actually good advice that would maybe cause one to become an ant-based superhero. Pay attention to the ants. Go to the ants means pay attention to the ants. Look to the ants, and you will see that though they have no commander or ruler, they still do hard work and they gather up food for the harvest. However, if you just have her, again, ignoring the typo, if you just have her say, my father always used to say, go to the ants, thou sluggard, without having her quote the entire Bible verse, it is so weird. I guess there was some sense that people would be more likely to just know the verse at the time and just fill in the rest themselves. I don't know how much that actually happened. I don't know how well known of a Bible verse this is. Did either of you know it? 
No. <laughs> and and I find it even more bizarre now because it's like, be industrious, go be prepared and store stuff and, and you know, be ready for the winter. Not what Hank seems to think it's saying, which is because Hank says, uh, yes, she was right. I sit here during doing nothing while throughout the world criminals prowl, injustice is rampant, tyranny tramples the underdog. That that verse is not about fighting crime. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he, he sees it as like, if you don't want to be a sluggard, if you're not a sluggish person, then you're you should get out and fight some crime. And therefore, I'm tired of being a sluggard. I am going to be instead more like an ant and I'm going to fight crime indefatigably. <laughs> You know what? You know what would also be not sluggardly would be doing crimes. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. <laughs> so, all right, ants, ants, notorious criminals. So his wife, <laughs> his wife is killed. He then says, "I'll find them. I'll find the ones who did this. I'll make them pay, Maria. I'll find them." And I swear it. Th- seemingly setting up in this issue some sort of mission behind the Iron Curtain. And he's fought people behind the Iron Curtain before. And you would think this issue would be about tracking someone down behind the Iron Curtain and avenging his wife. Who, boy, it is not. So we then get the one thing about this issue that really feels like a retcon. And here there is no typo. He says, I remember what she said. Go to the ants, thou sluggard. Yes, she was right. I sit here doing nothing while throughout the world. Criminals prowl. Injustice is rampant. Tyranny tramples the underdog. So I will strike back at all of it. Wherever rottenness exists, I'm a scientist. I will use my talents, my knowledge to find a way. And so alone, he threw himself into his work, driving always to keep the painful past from his mind. So much from his mind that it certainly has not been mentioned in the last 10 issues. And so then he then creates his shrinking and growing, well, not growing yet. He just creates his shrinking gas, well, I guess growing to just back to normal size. And he is doing so seemingly here to get revenge on the Soviets. And he has felt the Soviets. But suddenly, and again, as you were pointing out, Jeremy, it's on the final panel of a page. And in modern comic book storyline, they would probably want to save this abrupt, jarring transition to the next page. So then... Suddenly, out of nowhere, that story is just done. We are just done with this whole yeah, insane like, origin yes, story. I became an Ant-Man. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> he does not attempt in this issue to avenge his wife in any way. He does not you know, hear a rumor that she's still alive and go behind the Iron Curtain or do anything you might expect like that. No, no, not at all. We then have at the bottom of page five, someone rings his doorbell. You are Henry Pym. I am Dr. Vernon Van Dyne. You are quite famous, Mr. Pym. So I have come to visit, for we are both scientists and perhaps have much in common. Now, for the one one of the few times in the world where Henry Pym says, I don't do that kind of science, which is something he will <laughs> rarely say in the Avengers, <laughs> when he will do all kinds of science in the Avengers, he, at this point, has the wherewithal to go like, uh, doctor, I'm afraid I can't be of help to you. My field is molecular cell transition and cell specialization. <laughs> and it's like, oh, right. All types of science are not the same. So he sends a guy away, but not before he meets. I, 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 w- I wish he had been so conscientious when it came to creating Ultron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, maybe that's not my field and I should stay away from that. That's maybe that'd be better. So, but before the, he can send the guy away, the guy introduces his daughter. So when we first meet Janet Van Dyne, she, they keep talking about how young she is. And Hank yes. Pym thinks she's looks somewhat like Maria, but she's so much younger, not much more than a child. But she looks like she's 30 because she is wearing a pillbox hat and a suit. And we just don't think of, I don't how old is she supposed to be? Maybe 18? We don't think of 18-year-olds 18 so. 18 as wearing suits or pillbox hats. 
you know, well, she, I mean, you know, if, if if she's a debutante in 1963, you I know, I mean that that. That seems completely reasonable to me. It's not like, you know, she's not like youth culture has really made its way up into the upper classes yet at this point. I guess not. But so then she is, she, she says, now there's four M's here. She thinks, hmm, he's quite handsome, Mm -hmm. but scientists are such bores. I prefer the adventurous type, not those dull intellectual bookworms. So they've already thought poorly of each other right away and bodes ill well for a long and fraught relationship that they will have. Then <laughs> we then, so the, the dialogue is so bizarre in this book. And, you know, people go like, yes. oh, it was 1960s Marvel Comics. They all had bizarre dialogue. They did not have dialogue as bizarre as in this comic. We then, Vernon Van Dyne goes home with his daughter. He says, I've got it. The booster is pushing the rays deep into space. And she says, daddy, I'm going out somewhere. There is music and laughter and gaiety. And so <laughs> she leaves. That is bizarre dialogue. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's where I was I was wanting to point out. This wasn't all just Stan Lee. This is, you know, probably a lot of the plot came from Jack Kirby and some of the very clunky script came from, uh, was it Ernie Hart? Was that the name? Ernie right. Hart. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, uh, uh, yes, I, I was noticing very much to the uh, stilted Ernie Hart dialogue in here. It is insane. So <laughs> so then suddenly we're on page seven and a gigantic monster, not named in this issue, he just calls himself the creature from Cosmos. Uh, he will later be named and will, of course, come back. I had his name written down here. Pelia or something is the name he will eventually be given. But I don't know. I didn't think to look it up. Uh, one thing I will say about him is that the character design for him is pretty, it's, it's unique and it's pretty creepy. Uh, the way he sort of seems to be flowing fluid-like out of the wormhole. And uh, I, I find it really affecting. Yes. So then Janet comes home and finds her father dead. This creature Three has... pages after he came into existence. <laughs> yes. He, <laughs> he has been around for a couple pages. She has been around for just a couple panels. She went off to find some gaiety and came home it wearing, again, not exactly a party dress, and comes home, finds her father dead. Very nice panel of just a close-up of her eyeball seeing her dead father with Kirby. So, you know, it's Kirby inked by Heck. And in many ways, this issue feels more like Heck than Kirby, even though Kirby is penciling it. Heck Mm -hmm. is inking with a heavy hand here. But this one panel at the top of page eight, where we just are looking at her eyeball, all of the emotion is there. You can see that this is a woman looking at her dead father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so then she then says, I must have help. I must call somebody. But who? I don't know anyone who, wait, Pim, Henry Pim. He's a scientist too. Dad trusted him. She calls Henry Pim. And yeah. <laughs> who is looking at a test tube at the time he answers the phone. Of course. Lots because of people in Marvel look at test tubes. Hmm. And sciencing. He says, yes, this is Henry Pym. Janet Van Dyne. What? Your father? Oh, come now, he says, with come written in bold. And then he thinks to himself, those bored society playgirls are all alike, but it's pretty gruesome for her to get her kicks by making up a horror story about her father. 
<laughs> so then he yeah, somebody hangs up be. on her. You know what? It would be. You know what else is pretty gruesome? Assuming someone would make something like that up just because she's got the hots for you. I mean, <laughs> I don't think he even knows she has the hots for him. I think he's not even imputing <laughs> that much of a motive. She's bored. <laughs> I think she's like, I'm bored. Let me make up a story about my father dying and call that scientist. I just it's like a yesterday. prank. It's like a prank call. Like she's one of the jerky boys or something. <laughs> <laughs> something oh, like boy. that so then he says he says lights flashing on the cybernetic board it means a message is coming from the ants i have no time to play games with a spoiled brat like janet van dyne and then he didn't believe her but he does believe the ants and then he says what van dyne killed then she wasn't acting it's true this is not a job for henry pym it's a mission for ant-man and it, this time to show that he's small they they show him in front of his pipe yes and so then, and then we see the antipult again. The Yay! antipult. <laughs> so, Jeremy, what was your exposure? At what point did you go back and read all of these original issues and discover how bizarre they were with such thing here as the antipult, where he shoots himself across town and lands on a pile of ants? I think the first time I read, I'm pretty sure the first time I read this one was when uh, I initially got, you know, got the job for Unstoppable Wasp. And I was like, all right, let me go figure out this origin stuff. And this, this issue in particular, it's just a lot. There's a lot going on. <laughs> I, was say, I have that in my notes. This issue is a lot. That's what I say in my notes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, at that point, assumed every issue of, of Tales to Astonish was like this, which is not, not quite the case. But, but it's not I mean, entirely wrong either. Yeah. They're trying to cover a lot of ground in a little bit of space, you know? They, yeah. They oh, yeah. really are. So, yeah, so we have this utterly bizarre thing, which is him. He has this little cannon set into the side of his house. He cannot fly. He cannot, oh, say, just become a normal person and drive. He has to get across town wall small. So he shoots himself across town with a cannon, lands on a pile of ants. And then he goes there, decides at first not to tell Janet. He just goes up to Janet and and says, hi, I'm Ant-Man. Perhaps you've heard me. I've come to help you. And she's like, oh. This just reminds me of the tick. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, what is it? The human cannonball? He's just like, he jumps in. He's like, fire me, boy. Yes. <laughs> Shoot him across town. It's the same kind of same kind of thing. And then the same energy. It's very tick energy walking up and being like, hello, I'm Ant-Man. I'm here to help you. Maybe you've heard of me. <laughs> yes. I'm not the guy you just called. I'm not Hank Pym who you just called. I'm someone else who just happens to know you're in trouble. And so then, <laughs> so then he is, he Figures out it was an alien. She is instantly like, there's only one thing to do. There's only one thing I can do. Avenge him. And she thinks, oh, that is, and he ah. thinks, oh, that is so like Maria, which isn't necessarily, Maria was not all about the vengeance. But so then it's funny that the Wasp is later, one of her many great contributions to the moral universe, is she comes up with the name The Avengers. So in that first issue of The Avengers, she's the one who says we should call ourselves The Avengers. And here she already, when she is first introduced, is a fan of the word avenge. She goes, so Ant-Man has her call the FBI, and then he goes back home to his aunts and then figures out a little bit more about the alien. And then he decides, so this is, you're talking about clunky writing. This right here is clunky, not very modern writing, especially for a story that is so jam-packed that he has one conversation with her and then leaves and then instantly goes back to have another conversation with her. Um, so then he invites her over. He is wearing his Ant-Man costume, throws on a purple <laughs> robe over the Ant-Man costume. He is talking to her. She'll never know. With the and you can still see his superhero boots down below with the with the actual zigzag patterns showing through. Boots. I said those are his science boots. <laughs> right, exactly. 
but he's he's didn't bother to hide. He didn't bother to change because he's not going to keep the secret for long. He then whips off his robe and reveals, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what no one else in the world knows. In doing so, I put my life in your hands, but I tell you because I need a partner and I have chosen her. I am the Ant-Man. So he whips off his clothes, instantly says, whips off his robe, <laughs> is in his costume, instantly says, we're going to become superheroes together. We're going to become Ant-Man and the Wasp. And she says, yes, I say, yes, show me how, and I will stand beside you always to avenge my father's death. I swear it. So we've got a lot of avenging going on. He has sworn to avenge his first wife. And then that never comes up again in this story. And I'm not sure it ever comes up again in any story. And then suddenly his he's got this new girlfriend who wants to avenge her father. And he gives her wasp powers and says, but he's not just going to give her wasp powers. He says, well, when he says, when you are reduced to the size of a wasp, you will grow wings and tiny antennae. So, and right away, then the bad guy attacks again and they're like, let's go fight him. And he's like, I will shoot myself out of this cannon to fly across town and land on a pile of ants and you will fly alongside me. Of course, we're not exactly going to be equal because you can then fly around in any direction and <laughs> change direction where you're going and actually land comfortably. And you can do all these you things. Know what? Why didn't I give myself these powers? <laughs> you can do all these well, things. And, and, and that reminds me of the line in, was it in the second Ant-Man and the Wasp movie? Yes. Where, uh, where, where then he, you know, Scott Lang asks Henry Pym, it's like, Oh wow! So that wing that wing technology didn't exist when you gave me my powers. He's like, oh, it did. <laughs> yeah. I, man, this is as, as much as like we use. I used this for like research for for Nadia. Like I wrote Janet a lot, and especially the second Unstoppable Wasp series. And this is, I think, where I took a lot of my inspiration for like how to write Janet. Is like Janet is like literally one minute. I don't know. We're giving the impression she's like 16 or 17. She's like whatever the fifties equivalent of just going to the mall with friends is she comes home and her dad is dead. And Ant-Man's like, Oh yeah. An alien killed him. Some sort of horrible thing from another dimension. And she's like, I'm going to up. I'm going <laughs> to kill that alien for my dad. And it's like, you were with what you were just at the mall like what are you gonna do she's like no i'm, I'm gonna be a superhero now forget it forget i'm it. gonna do it before but now that this alien killed my dad well you do do you know and when i heard that you had done a moss book i'm like oh great it's great that i'm i read your book for this podcast and i was like oh great i love jan van dyne i love to do a wasp book and then i started reading I'm like oh this is not about jan van dyne this is about this girl nadia who at first is called nadia pym and then Jana Van Dyne becomes a mentor to her, and she changes her name to Nadia Van Dyne. And I was so happy that Janet did become a major character in your book. And I thought that you ultimately caught on a great balance of having anybody who is reading this book because they love Janet Van Dyne is going to get all the Janet Van Dyne they want. They're going to get a great, it is fun, great to finally have a series that is very focused on Janet Van Dyne. And on this younger character who is able to come into the book with a lot less baggage and come into the book and bring a youthful energy to it. And it becomes very much a book about girl power and about uh, girls in science and girl scientists. And it, it, you know, which you could not have gotten out of a book that was just about Jane of Fantine. But so uh, did you, in terms of being able to play in that sandbox, what did you have to ask for permission? Did you say, hey, could I have Janet too? Or were th was that part of the assignment from the original that Janet would be part of the book? Um, early on when I, I started working on it, one of the things that they 
wanted me to be careful about from the beginning was that it uh, that we didn't immediately have Janet in the book and it become Janet's book because I, I feel like there there would be an easy tendency to do that right because she is such a well developed and likable character which you know at the point you immediately introduce her in the first few pages of the book then she would kind of take it over you know they they wanted me to hold off on on doing much with Janet so you know the first arc of of the first volume of, of Unstoppable Wasp has very little Janet in it. Um, you know, she's on the other end of a phone at one point and that's it. But then, you know, when, when things go down at the end of the first arc, you know, she's the first person that both, you know, Nadia and Jarvis call. I feel like my kind of mantra with, with Janet is like, she's the Avenger that gets stuff done. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. she might not be able to, you know, fight a God or, um, you know, get necessarily run the whole team in battle, but she is the Avenger that it's like, Hey, if you need you know, 10 different things done. If you need to, you know, put something together at the last minute, like you call Janet and Janet will get it done. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Janet will make it work. <laughs> and yeah, you very much use her like that. You have her as sort of this, your main character, Nadia, is someone who is is just brand new to America, brand new to adult life, brand new to a lot of things and brand new to being a superhero and does not have a lot of coping skills yet. And in some ways, loses some coping skills over the course of the series as she deals with mental illness, which we'll get to later. Then you have Janet as sort of this mentor character who it's a really great place for Janet. It's great to see her develop in that direction. Again, yeah, like you said, you're using sort of stuff that was here from the beginning and showing new aspects of the character that she has never gotten to show. And again, it's sort of a shame that she never got her own series. It's a shame that she didn't have her own series in the 80s when Roger Stern was doing such good work with her or when other writers were doing good work with her. But it's great that then this series that is not technically about her sort of gives her such a chance to shine. So, all right, well, let's keep going through this issue. So then (laughs) they arrive at the George Washington Bridge. Again, the wasp is able to easily alight on the ground while Ant-Man has to crash into a big pile of ants. Um, Let let me point out for a moment here that with our whole big back and forth about whether Ant-Man was in New York City or in so-called Center City, at this point, we, I think, have seen the last reference to Center City now that we talk about the George Washington Bridge and Manhattan. Uh, I don't think we ever hear Center City referred to again. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, less. I feel like less than 10 pages before or since she entered the comic, uh, Janet on page 13 has now professed her love to Hank. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then Hank's like, you must not say that, Janet. You're only a child. <laughs> yes. She says the, the, the amount of times that Hank Pym and Reed Richards uh, called the people that they will marry children is very disturbing to me. <laughs> Well, but I think in this case, there is much more of an age gap here than there is in Fantastic Four. I think that Reed belittles his girlfriend slash fiance slash wife and treats her like a child. In this case, I would say that today we would go like, well, there is a big age gap here and he doesn't want to act on, he doesn't want to, as opposed to Reed, who very much from the beginning is like, we are going to get married someday. I assume you're my girlfriend. I assume even though I never actually want to talk about it, that you're my girlfriend, that you're going to get married to me and that you're my fiance. Hank is like, no way, you're too young, which it's like, well, here I am in 2021 going good for you. You know, <laughs> she is your, yeah. she is your coworker. She is too young for you. You should not be interested in her. Good for you. But she, she, he is like, I want you to know, in case this creature kills us, as it did my father, I, I'm falling in love with you, this person who she met yesterday, and then turned her into a wasp. 
But then instantly, this love is right away, a page later, not going, not manifesting itself in good ways, because then she says, that awful thing killed my father. If you're afraid, I'm not. And she goes right up to fight the monster. And he says, Wasp, come back, you fool child, come back. And she thinks, I'll show him I'm not a child. And then she tries to attack the monster directly. He has to grab her, take her away. Don't you try anything like that again. I didn't say I was quitting. I've just got to find a way to fight that thing. And I think I found how. He figures out that the creature is made of formic acid. They go home. <laughs> she, he is telling her what to do. She says, yes, sir, boss man. And they fill <laughs> shotgun shells with the antidote to formic acid. Now, this is now. And I think this happened more when Kirby was, quote, penciling, unquote, and actually potting or co-potting the book is that Kirby would forget that Ant-Man could grow. And so then they have they have these shotgun shells filled with the antidote to formic acid, and they've got them in a shotgun, and all they can do is shoot a shotgun at the bad guy. And then they're like, but now how can we carry the rifle in the shells? And he says, my friend, the ants shall do that for us. Like, yes, that's the best way to carry a shotgun across town is to have a bunch of ants do it. Hey, here's an idea. Why don't you just grow to full size and drive across town with your shotgun and then attack the monster? And I think especially when Kirby is drawing the book, Ant-Man just forgets these things. And so then they when that is becomes the major issue in this issue of how can we being so tiny get this shotgun across town, then they literally and then fire it. Thousands of ants that have to pile up to form a little base for the shotgun. And then tiny Ant-Man has to pull the trigger in a very funny Kirby panel of this tiny guy trying to pull a trigger. All of this would be perfectly fine if he just grew, which he has the ability to do. He shoots yeah. the monster with anti-formic acid shotgun shells and... It disappears instantly. We will later find out that he was actually taken to another planet by the stranger, but it, it seems like he is destroyed by the anti-formic acid. He says, she says, yes, we've won, we've won. And he says, uh, we, we'd better get back to the lab. And from now on, you must not display such emotion. It, it isn't proper. And she thinks he's blushing and pretending he didn't feel any emotion at all. And so then he calls the FBI. He's like, oh, it's all good. But then she thinks... Well, he says to the FBI, I'm not going it alone. Not anymore. Not ever again. And she thinks, no, my darling, I will always be beside you. And someday I will make you realize that you love me as I love you. But until that day comes, it will be as you wanted. Just partners, the Ant-Man and the Wasp fighting side by side. And that is the end of this absolutely crazy issue. <laughs> and of, of course, one of the things I've, I've learned in my life is if somebody says, oh, well, I'm in love with you. Oh, well, uh, you know, let's just be friends. No matter which the gender direction is on that, it's like that never ends well. <laughs> you know? Well, it ends uh, well when they end up being friends, which can happen just fine. But yeah, if well, one person what... then decides to force it to become a romantic relationship by, say, going, oh, you're having a psychotic break in which you think you're a different superhero. I'll take advantage <laughs> of that and go ahead and get married while you're in the middle of your psychotic break. Yes. Well, I, I guess my point was just that um, the person saying, oh, that's all right, 
it's almost never all right. Yeah, true. (laughs) And indeed, that is the case here. And indeed, once they finally get married, there are problems. So it's like the seeds of that are sort of already planted. You know, one thing that really jumped out at me here was that um, Henry had the wasp costume ready to go for her. Um, And there seemed to be like maybe just an hour in between, like, I mean, unless page 12 has some really greatly telescoped time, uh, which it's possible. I mean, you know, you can, you know, lots of lots of stuff happens in the gutters on these things. But, uh, you know, you certainly get the impression it's just a few hours that have passed. His electronic impulses coming from my Ant Scouts. Janet, in the closet is a costume woven from unstable molecules that will expand and shrink as you do. I have a feeling this is our first mission. So he's already got this wasp costume, and it's the conehead one that she's wearing in the first issue of The Avengers, too. Uh, I've forgotten... Mm-hmm. Jeremy, let's talk about the conehead because you go ahead. You kept the conehead, so let's. How do you feel about the conehead? Um, I think it's kind of hilarious, <laughs> honestly. Um, how do you it's, do you think it serves a purpose? When you were writing the character, were you like, okay, this is why she has a cone on her head? Did you have some reason in your mind? Oh, um, no. Uh, <laughs> I assume that. Uh, Hank just put it there and was like, I'll figure out something for this later. <laughs> and then he never did, because that's the way that's the way inventing things goes when you're Hank Pym. You're just like, All right, you know, this is this is the thing I'm working on now, and then something shiny gets your attention, and then you forget to ever come back to it and figure out why why this thing was this way. But yeah, because we, we have uh one of the characters put on, you know, one of Janet's original costumes in Unstoppable Wasp, and I got to have some fun with that because sort of like Mockingbird makes a snarky remark about her old costume and how how ridiculous it is, and then she you know makes fun of Mockingbird for having like the bell bottom sleeves, wizards, big yeah bell sleeves in her costume, <laughs> which is far more ridiculous if you're punching people. Like, why would you have bell sleeves to hide your staves? I mean, that's yeah. common sense. <laughs> Yeah, and your fists, and sometimes other people's faces when you're punching them. And, you, know, you just get tangled up in everything, I feel like. But uh, so, one of the interesting things about Jan Van Dyne, which I don't think it's ever been done with any other character that I, it's one of the reasons I love the character so much, is that she was the only character who would constantly redesign her costume every couple of issues for years and years and years. And eventually they sort of decided that was a little embarrassing and they stopped doing it. And I loved that aspect of the character. I loved this idea that this is a woman who loves fashion and you really ran with that when you were doing your thing. One thing I really liked about your series is that your series is very much about girls in science and empowering girls in science. And I was like, well, is he going to fall into the trap? I thought as I read it of going like, therefore, strong equals science. Strong girl equals girl interested in science. And if we're going to show a girl is strong, we have to show her is interested in science. And therefore, we're going to have to downplay Janet or be embarrassed by the fact that Janet was not a scientist herself when they created her as a character. And no, you're like, no, this is very much a strong woman character who, as opposed to most of the other female characters in the book, she is not a scientist and she's not ashamed of that. And you as the writer weren't ashamed of that. And you have her still being very interested in fashion, as well as being the CEO of the company that is utilizing her husband's technology. And I was very happy. I feel like people fall into traps when they're writing of going like, if I'm going to try to encourage, you were in such a tricky position in your book in that 
your book was very much showing Nadia as a role model. Girls should be more interested in science. And in the, well, not even girls should be more interested in science, but girls should be encouraged in their interest in science. And in the back of every issue of your comic, you had an interview with an actual female scientist, and there was this element of it. But you avoided a lot of the traps you could have fallen into in terms of going like, okay, am I writing about a full human character or am I writing about a role model? And can you do both at the same time? So can you talk about that? Can you talk about threading that line? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think there is a, a belief definitely in the comics, but sort of in, in a lot of the fandom and in a lot of people who, who think and talk about comics generally that like, oh, you know, Janet is portrayed as being kind of silly. Um, and she definitely is at times. But I think, you know, Janet, she is interested in fashion and both the fashion and the design elements of that, I think, butt up interestingly with being a superhero and being, you know, an Avenger and, and working largely with a number of people who are scientists, because I think, you know, design and engineering are very closely related and engineering and science are very closely related. Right. And you could certainly make an argument for Janet, you know, having having skills working in in fashion and in making practical things, being a very useful skill as a as a superhero and especially as somebody who, you know, works with a, a team of superheroes who have you know, a, a number of different uh, concerns as far as their costumes being damaged or containing things or, you know, different sorts of things like that. So I, I think the biggest mistake, I think, is that a lot of people, and this, I think, certainly has its roots in, you know, the in the 60s and in the way that these characters are sort of treated then, I think the mistake is throwing the, the passions and the um, skills out as being like, oh, girly, useless things. When, you know, those are those are things that can be very useful. And, you know, she's not you, you made the you said that she's one of the or she's the only character that changes her costume. There is one other one, and that's Kitty Pride. Oh, that's true. Um, oh, Kitty yeah. constantly changes her costume. But Kitty has zero fashion sense and no <laughs> yeah. ability to make anything. So <laughs> most true. of her that's a big difference. Famously, famously, there is that horrible, garish roller skating, like gold lame and green yeah. and whatever <laughs> purple yeah, the, thing that she came up with that one time. The various things she wore when she was on Excalibur are pretty wild. Um, but, you know, Janet is, is a person, I mean, she's in a way that a lot of superheroes, a lot of the Avengers especially, are not she is a person um she makes things she does things she has a job she uh knows how to do things she has connections um you know and i there's a, a part of me that you know if, if i get a chance to write janet more i, I want to explore sort of some of the socialite aspect of of you know her growing up and you know the the ways that she's changed over time because you know she does very easily fall into this role of of she could contrast with these girls you know they are all they're all super intelligent they're all scientists and you could say and they're so much different than janet over here who's you know a silly girl who likes clothes yeah yeah she's into fashion but i think you know having janet as this this person who yeah she she knows how to make clothes she's also a business person she understands like how this stuff works she is it's it's my opinion that like having Janet in charge of PIM Labs from a business perspective is a much better idea than having Hank in charge of PIM Labs ever was. Because <laughs> Hank is, like I said, Hank is distracted by shiny things. Um, you know, I, I think that's the way Hank's 
science is written. And that, that was the one bit of guidance that Mark gave me as far as like ways that he thought Nadia should be like Hank is that uh, he wrote an issue of uh, age of Ultron where they sort of explore the past of Hank and that Hank's uh, his motivation in doing science is not necessarily the same as Reed's or any of these other guys. His motivation is like, well, why do I do it? Oh, to see if I can, like, you know, I got interested in doing this thing. So I decided to just do it. And you know, what purpose does making square bubbles uh, serve? None. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's sort of, Nadia is like that to some extent. And Janet is in a lot of ways, the opposite of that. Janet is like, I had a goal and I'm working towards that goal. I'm, you know, I know how she knows how to be an adult in a way that a lot of the other Avengers, even, even now are, I think projected as not being like Tony Stark is not a functional adult, you yeah. know? Well, and one of the things, you know, you were talking about the different ways that uh, the different kinds of strength that uh, that Janet has and the different sorts of ways that she contrasts from the other girls, but not in a detrimental way, is she also got herself out of an abusive relationship. You know? yeah. I mean, that that's she and beyond just all the Avenger stuff where, you know, she's seen some things. Right. But then also just on this very normal, everyday level, you know, she was a smart capable, powerful woman who still ended up in an abusive relationship and was able to get past that. And uh, that seems, I mean, that's a real, very real world thing. You know, one of the things that my brother and I, that Matt and I have talked about uh, in the past uh, with this is that, you know, we were first introduced to Marvel Comics right around the time that Hank hit Janet and then ended up uh, being court-martialed and, you know, ended up with divorce and all that sort of stuff. And so that was sort of our introduction to the Marvel Comics universe. And I remember as an eight-year-old kid, that really being some profound stuff, you know, about how heroes aren't always going to be good and do the right thing all of the time. Heroes can make terrible mistakes. And powerful women aren't necessarily going to be able to stay out of these sorts of abusive relationships all the time. And women can get, you know, women have, and once again, not to blame anyone who is stuck in an abusive relationship, but just sort of showing a story of a woman getting herself out of an abusive relationship. And, you know, certainly my parents weren't in, uh, uh, in, any kind of abusive relationship or anything like that. But, you know, you always had friends whose parents were getting divorced and stuff like that. And I just really found this to, as an eight or nine-year-old boy, to be really, you know, I think it affected me in a deep way in terms of how I see relationships and how I see women and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I can, I, I'm, and I really feel feel that, I don't know if you were getting at that directly in how you were characterizing Janet, but it certainly felt, um uh, it, it certainly felt congruous to what uh, to what I saw as um, as a kid when I first was introduced to the character. Yeah, it was definitely something that I wanted to address and something that, you know, I, I kind of held off on doing anything with until what ended up being the, the last issue of the first run. It wasn't originally planned that way. I wanted to have this moment where, you know, Nadia, who has sort of idolized her father from the moment that she found out about him, uh, you know, finds out about this this moment between the two of them, which uh, there's there's a lot of contention around in in Marvel fandom. Um, <laughs> That's an understatement. 
Yeah, because, you know, it's a part of the story that, you know, it was not originally intended to be such an <laughs> such an abusive scene that, you know, it was uh, not not written that way, but it was drawn in a way that very much made it look like, you know, Hank was slapping Janet. And then that's, you know, comics are what's drawn on the page. So uh, that became the, the reality of what was there. And I, I think it's, there's an ability to... I think you can look at it two ways that either, you know, Hank and Janet are both haunted by that moment as characters or that they have both had a chance to grow as people from that moment. And, you know, clearly it's not a, not a good thing for Hank, but also I think some of the folks who have written him before me have established that, you know, he has a history of, of issues with mental illness. And, you know, I, I wanted Janet to be able to have this moment where, Hank has Hank has had a lot of chances throughout the stories that have been told about that moment and about him to talk about what led to that and why that is the way it is and why he should be forgiven and it should be forgotten. But it was important to me for Janet to have a moment where she got to talk about this situation in which she was the victim of abuse and say, like, I I learned a lot from it. It was bad. I, you know, have come out the other end different and stronger. And also to acknowledge that, like, Hank is a person who has issues. And that, you know, Hank's... What makes Hank... A, what makes Hank a problem for her is not that he is somebody who has these issues, but that he is somebody... He's somebody who has known about these issues and has failed to treat them in a way that, uh, you know, they, they should be treated. He's failed to, he's not a person who goes to therapy regularly. He's not a person who deals with his issues in a healthy way. He's a person who deals with his issues by throwing himself back into more work and, you know, putting, putting himself in an even worse position. And it was important to me that Janet have her own say on that. And to, to talk about that situation and that Nadia in turn have a chance to, you know, learn from that in her own life, especially in, you know, the second volume when she has her own bipolar episode and, uh, you know, ha does something very similar to a friend and decides to do to handle it better than Hank did to, you know, apologize directly and to go to therapy and to. Uh, figure out for herself, you know, what she can do and to take some time out of the lab and some time off of working to figure her own stuff out, which is something Hank never does. Yeah. I mean, I so, feel like you were in such a tricky situation because, you know, this is a book that was consciously being written for young, you know, younger readers, I think, than say the Avengers book that was coming out at the time was being written for, that this was a book that was very much a girl power type book. So I think it was especially important for you not to go like, not to have Janet go like, well, yes, your father hit me, but you know, here were the reasons why, here are the reasons why I've forgiven him, or I can give reasons for the abuse because you very much didn't want to be in a position where it's like, where you were modeling behavior for your younger readers, Absolutely. making excuses for abuse. But then of course you fall into this trap of going like, well, it's important to show these sort of role model characters not making excuses for abuse because we would certainly hate for anyone reading this book to end up doing the same in their own life. But it becomes then very hard to give reasons without giving excuses and, you know, to give the reasons for something without sounding like you're excusing something. And I think that you were sort of caught in this trap to a certain extent. And I was interested as a reader in seeing how you would sort of get out of that trap of having these people be discuss 
an abusive father in the way, especially one who has since passed away and isn't, you know, in danger of harming anybody else, discussing him in a way that is human without making excuses. And you go in such a fascinating direction with it where you're like, they pretty much unreservedly condemn it. And they're like, you know, like, yes, your father hit me. There's no excuse. We're not going to talk about that as much. And then suddenly you go like, oh, but guess one thing that happens with bipolar disorder is it gets passed down genetically. And this at this point was continuing on from volume one to volume two. So, you know, you're developing this more gradually than maybe you would have liked to develop it because the book was canceled (laughs) for a while and then revived. And then you pick up this sort of slowly developing story of the way, ironically, she discovers empathy for her father is that she finds herself, she finds that she has genetically inherited his same bipolar condition and that she then has man camp. So did she then hits a friend in the lab in a very similar manner to way Hank hit his wife in the lab. And it's like, oh, well, that's how you can do an empathy story without in any way making excuses for the behavior. It's one thing to decide whether or not you're going to excuse or forgive the mistakes of the past, but then it's a whole other issue when you end up repeating the mistakes of the past. And nothing builds empathy more than that, (laughs) is that, oh, right, I heard this and I thought it was a horrible thing. And then I never thought I would find myself doing the same thing, which I thought was just brilliant. I thought that was just a great way of making this story fully human and fully realized in a way that is not just like, well, you know, because inevitably, if you're just talking about the past comics, then you've got all this baggage. You know, you you were just yeah. taking on a series with just a huge amount of baggage and you had to find a way to carry that baggage. And I think having her have her own manic episode and discover what was really going with her father in like the most terrific way was just a great way to carry that baggage. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it was it was one of those things that I think from from the beginning of the series or you know very early in the series, I wanted to end up at this you know at this scene that happens in the second volume where she is you know having her own uh, manic episode and then her own depressive episode you know after that, and she gets to to see these things because. I think, you know, at the time that these stories with with Hank and Janet were being written, they didn't have the language for it. They didn't, you know, know what bipolar disorder was. Um, And they certainly didn't have the sort of, you know, materials and research available that, you know, we we do now just with the Internet. Um, It's it's so much easier to be able to, you know, get a hold of people who uh, are experts in these things, who know what they're talking about, who... Uh, you know, can help me because I I consulted both people who uh, personally deal with having bipolar disorder and people who are you know professionals in psychology who who know about this stuff to make sure that we were getting it right. And it was important to me because I think superhero comics as as a whole have a complicated relationship with mental illness. Yes, um, <laughs> Me- you know, media in general does, but yes, comic books in particular. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a particular uh, guy who dresses like a bat in DC Comics who has an entire collection of people who's who are villains because of a mental illness. Yeah, you know, and various misrepresented or questionably represented mental illnesses. And so, I wanted to make sure we had this chance to write this sort of like 21st century story about mental health because I. 
you know, the, the first thing that occurred to me as like, I was writing, as I was writing this and I was uh, doing my research on bipolar disorder is that bipolar disorder is something that uh, reacts very interestingly with the idea of being a superhero because so many stories about like Spider-Man and about various other characters are about, you know, going through these hard times and these really difficult situations and then just continuing on past the point that you shouldn't be able to and finding that last bit of push, that last bit of energy to keep going. And bipolar disorder functions on that. Like bipolar disorder is about like getting past that point that you should stop and your brain not telling you that, like your brain telling you that you have to do it, that you have to keep going that, you know, you, you stay up, everything seems like a good idea. Everything seems like it has to get done right now. And, you know, that it has to, it has to be perfect. And, uh, you know, it, it, it takes you well past the point that your body responds in the way it should. And things start seeming like good ideas that aren't good ideas. And you get, you know, very emotional and very, you know, to, to the point that you might not know what you're doing. And, you know, that is, that is an especially dangerous thing if you are a superpowered individual or, you know, in, in the case of Nadia, just a, somebody who has been trained to kill people. Um, <laughs> you know, if if you are pushed to the point of, of, you know, breaking and you are trying to get done this thing that you feel like you absolutely have to get done and somebody grabs you and restrains you and forcibly, you know, tells you that you can't go do the thing you feel like you need to do, your first instinct is going to be to punch him in the face. And that's, you know, that's what she does both here and it's, you know, what she does in the first volume when she's just dealing with the the trauma of having been attacked. And, you know, Janet, Janet reaches out for her and grabs her arm from behind. You know, she reacts as like somebody would who has been traumatized and she punches Janet in the face. You know, it was, it was important to get that stuff right for me and to, you know, be able to like be able to point at this thing and say like, hey, this is like. This is generally an unhealthy attitude, what we expect from superheroes of like to push yourself beyond your limits and, you know, continue on no matter what. But, you know, in this case, it is something that is especially toxic and difficult for somebody who is dealing with having bipolar disorder. But were you worried so, about were you worried about sending bad messages? I mean, you know, I think everybody who writes for anybody, anybody who writes for any age has, you know, worries about sending bad messages or sending unhealthy messages. But I think for this book, which was very much focused on girl power, it must have been especially tricky. I mean, you must have been especially worried about that. Oh yeah. It I mean, I <laughs> I have, I read over these pages so many times and I went through them with my editor so many times. And I, uh, like I said, I had uh, a couple of psychologists that that went over them with me and made sure of the wording of things. And I had a couple of, you know, people who, who have bipolar disorder, take a look at them and, and make sure that everything that was expressed there was expressed in a way that they were comfortable with and they felt reflected their experience. And I mean, on top of that, there came a point very far down the line when, you know, the pages were already being drawn uh, where somebody at the, you know, high up in the Marvel office kind of started paying attention to this and was like, hey, um, we need to get our legal team to look at this and make sure all of this is okay." Oh, really? Um, Yeah. And I, I was 
I was very careful with it because, you know, I, I knew that, you know, especially there's an issue in there where she is, she has been through her uh, manic episode and she is dealing with depression and she is having bad thoughts and she comes very close to being suicidal. And I wanted to make sure that I express the reality of that, of what people deal with there. Uh, but also that it wasn't something where people would read that and get different ideas about how they should deal with stuff. So, you know, we had like, instead of the normal uh, interviews that we have in the back, I, I uh, talked to my, my friend Chris Carey about, uh, you know, psychology and about how somebody, you know, dealing with bipolar disorder, uh, what they should do, how, you know, what you should do if you have, if you know somebody who you think is dealing with the same sort of thing. And luckily, I, I was holding my breath for a while there, but, um, you know, Marvel and, and Disney's legal, the, the only real change that we had to make was that somebody actually, uh, not Nadia, but uh, one of the other characters actually says the word suicide at one point in that story. And uh, they were like, yeah, we can't, we don't want that in there. You, you can allude to it. You can kind of slide into it sideways, but legal is very nervous about having the word suicide wow. there. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought you handled it very well. Well, thank you. Jeremy, I, I, I didn't want to misrepresent things. Uh, I just want to let you know, I actually was diagnosed finally with bipolar disorder about two years ago. So I was unaware of that connection when I invited you on here and then went and, you know, went to go read the uh, the, the, the full uh, Unstoppable Wasp run. And I ran into that. I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. So, um, I mean, mine doesn't present the same way. It's called Bipolar 2. And uh, it's really my, my, my problem is more with the downs than the ups. But um, yeah. still... Uh, uh, it was, uh, I, I found that very compelling <laughs> that you were dealing with that. Now, um, one question that I have is had Henry Pym actually gotten a diagnosis of bipolar disorder before you came on board this, or is it just, oh, he had some mental health problems? Um, so in Avengers AI, which is mostly centered around him, he, uh, is self-diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He does not have an official diagnosis, but he is at one point, I think, talking to Vision in that book and is, is saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is what I go through. I'm, I'm pretty sure I have, you know, bipolar disorder and uh, this is what I deal with. And that was that was interesting to me because I think it gave me both a, a diagnosis to work with for Nadia and also sort of a, a reasoning for, you know, what Janet says in, in volume one, which is like, he's a person that knows he has a problem, but he doesn't do anything about it. Like he, mm -hmm. you know, he, he thinks he can handle it. Um, and he doesn't need to talk to a psychologist. He doesn't need medication. You know, he's uh, a person who is, is so sure of his own ability to take care of it. He's never, never been officially diagnosed, even though he has given himself whatever tests he thinks, you know, prove this. It was nice to see therapy portrayed in a both positive and realistic manner. <laughs> you know, so often therapy is uh, is is depicted in really upsetting ways <laughs> in media in general. And so it was uh, it was nice to uh, to not see that. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting that that same character who uh, you know dresses like a bat also, along with all of these characters whose defining quality is being mentally ill, also has a character whose defining quality is being an evil psychologist. Yeah, 
yeah. Now, um, was it your plan to deal with the uh, mental illness aspect of things when you went into the first series, or is that something you came up with for the second Unstoppable Wasp series and had not been originally planning to uh, address that? That was absolutely something that I, I wanted to address from the beginning. And in the early volumes, I was like, well, I, I don't want to jump directly into this. I don't think that would be good for anybody involved to, you know, dive straight into this story. So, you know, I want to I want to queue it up and have a couple of stories under our belt and then we'll have a chance to go into that. And then, of course, that didn't happen. That book got canceled. And then, uh, you know, when we had the chance again to to come back and do another story with Nadia, I was like, well, I absolutely have to do it now. Like. You know, I, I will not be happy with myself if I, you know, a year later I'm looking back at this run of Wasp and saying, oh, why didn't I do, why didn't I do this story? Because I, I felt like it was an important story to tell. So, yeah, it was it was definitely something that was sort of in in my distant view when I first started setting up that first book. But, you know, was I didn't have completely planned out and wasn't honestly sure, wasn't honestly sure if Marvel would let me do it once, you know, we started setting up such a you know, all ages friendly book. Um, you know, it's, it's a scary thing for them, I think, to uh, have a book that they know kids are reading and then introduce something uh, very difficult to talk about into it. Yes. But, but um, I, I mean, personally, I feel important. I mean, I, I really think that a lot of people think a little too much about uh, protecting kids from difficult things that they may have to deal with later in life. Whereas, you know, I generally am in the feeling of, you want to know, make sure they're prepared whenever it shows up. You know? Absolutely. So if it's something that if it's something that a kid their age might be having to deal with right now, then it's okay for that kid for any kid to learn about it at this point because there are other kids who are having to deal with it. So uh, no, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you were able to get that in there. Uh, are, are, is there any um, any more uh, unstoppable wasp content that might be coming uh, coming up at some point? Um, I wish I could say yes. I don't honestly uh, have a, a lead on anything that we might be doing in the future. I've had the chance to write her a couple of other times. Um, you know, Nadia's in a few issues of Avengers, um, both before and after my, my first run on Unstoppable Wasp that I, I co-wrote with Mark. And then um, I recently, I guess, well, I guess it's last year now, uh, did a a uh, series with IDW on the Marvel action line, uh, which was called Marvel action chillers. It's a series of sort of interconnected, scary stories revolving around a certain evil book. And, you know, Nadia is in one of those. And so that was, that was a great time to get to, you know, pull Nadia back into that story and uh, tell a story with her along with, you know, we've got Riri Williams and Dr. Strange and Spider-Man and Iron Man, all, all the fun guys in there. All right. Well, We've had a long conversation, so let's go ahead and say our advice here and talk about where people can find you now on the internet and on the bookstore shelves. Jeremy, where where should people go next to get more Jeremy? Uh, yeah, so immediately uh, they can go to Twitter. I am at jrome58, so it's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. It's the same on uh, Tumblr and Instagram if you happen to be in those places, though I update those less. Um, and that has links to all of my stuff on there. It's also, my website is jeremywhitley.com, and I do a weekly podcast called Progressively Horrified, in which we uh, sit down with a, a few friends and talk about uh, horror movies and how they deal with 
progressive content. So we talk about horror movies and feminism and horror movies and race and uh, all sorts of interesting things, you know, because I think scary movies can be fun for everybody. In addition to that, all of the uh, books of Princeless and Raven the Pirate Princess are on shelves right now. And then the first book of uh, School for Extraterrestrial Girls is out from Paper Cuts right now. And the second one is coming soon. Fantastic. I read on top of was in preparation for this interview and really enjoyed it. And then I had realized while I was reading it that you did Princeless. I never read Princeless, but my wife read it to my daughter and they both really loved it. Well, that's nice. awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. This was, you know, the first time we, we had an interview with Douglas Wolk in our last episode or uh, maybe two episodes back now at this point. And but this is the first time we've actually read an issue of a Marvel comic with a guest. And I'm so glad we could have someone to help us get through this absolutely insane issue. One of the weirdest <laughs> Marvel comics ever published. And you came along later and did a, I, I talked about Douglas Wolk doing reclamation work on some Marvel comics. And, but this is truly true of you. You did a work of reclamation. You found this great potential for a story hidden deep, deep, deep in Marvel history. And you then turned it into 18 great issues. And that is just a wonderful thing to have done. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, I love Nadia. I love that book. And I'm I'm happy to talk about uh, about my, my wasps anytime. <laughs> great. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, thank you, Jeremy. We will, uh, uh, good luck with everything. And we will uh, return for more. We'll be back with more Marvel Reread Club soon. All right. I'm off to be fired from a cannon into a bed of ants. <laughs> yes. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> no problem. All right. All right. Th- thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.